I'm here, my adorable little baby degenerates. I missed you. Welcome home. And by home, I of course mean another illustrious episode of Tales of Taboo. For anyone new to my personal sector of hell, hi. My name is Ali Weiss. I am a Z-list performer and writer born and raised in downtown New York City, and I am absolutely infatuated with any and all people, ideas, and experiences that scare the shit out of the majority of society. (laughs) I make myself laugh too. This show is an exploration and illumination of the subjects that most people would rather keep in the dark. Um, through anonymous stories from our listeners all over the world who have actually experienced these things and can talk about them firsthand. I seek to give you slices of life that we've been taught are bad and encourage you to reconsider why exactly we give them that label. My work as a whole is about erasing shame and fear of difference from the conversation, but it also explores the idea of anonymity in the digital age and how most of us desperately want to be heard, just not always seen. So let's get into it. From comedy to health blogging to now, As the self-proclaimed princess of taboo, my various rebrands have all revolved around exploring hurt and the subsequent coping mechanisms. And the desire to do this is largely selfish, to be honest. Um, I've suffered from depression and anxiety and debilitating ADD and the residual effects of various traumas for 23 years of my life and spent much of my childhood and even young adulthood feeling lonely, misunderstood, and most of all, really judged. So I've desperately looked for people with similar feelings to mine, even if the causes of those feelings aren't the same, so that we could trauma bond. (laughs) I hate that phrase. I hate the word trauma, but it's true. And the most valuable lesson that I've learned is no matter what our preferred poison is, that hurt that we're all seeking to quell registers the same way in our various hearts and guts. And from that, I have learned that no coping mechanism is superior to another. Let me ask you, like, honestly, what do you think of when you think a drug addict? There's no judgment or shame here, like with me or with yourself. I I want you to just be honest in this moment. What do you think of? You probably think of like a homeless person, someone filthy under a bridge or on a train someone who's at rock bottom, like broke, desperate, maybe even violent. Or on the flip side, maybe you envision like Wolf of Wall Street, Wall Street bros with too much work and too much money diving into mountains of cocaine so big you could literally ski down them. 
or paparazzi photos of celebrities stumbling out of the Chateau Marmont, or Johnny Depp and Amber Heard screaming at each other on some foreign island after downing five bottles of wine. Sometimes this black and white um, is accurate. These are accurate depictions, but it's often a lot more nuanced, like a deep gray area. Addiction is rarely solely a result of how rich or poor someone is, but rather psychological circumstances. And most people don't realize that addicts are often not just struggling with one thing in their lives. There's this domino effect, or addiction to substances will stem from another addictive tendency like binging and purging. And we talked about this in the eating disorder episode from last season, Think about the past two years alone, like how many so-called normal people began drinking and smoking and pill popping while isolating and how that just kind of over time spiraled out of control. Addiction is painted as selfish and destructive and like really terrifying. And honestly, it can be. I've seen addiction tear through people I adore many times over, and you just, you never get over that. But addiction can also be quiet and sneaky and highly livable. It can be in clothes from Madewell and sitting on West Elm furniture. For as much as it can ruin lives, Addiction can also be profoundly average. And furthermore, society has been really nice to functional male addicts in the media, like Keith Richards or the aforementioned Johnny Depp and Hunter S. Thompson. And the media even like suggests that it adds to their creative powers and to their sex appeal. But female addicts, on the other hand, like Amy Winehouse, are branded like disastrous and embarrassing, even if, as Amy was, they're immensely talented. We all know my opinion is not always the right one. I'm the first to admit that. But in my opinion, drug and alcohol use as a coping mechanism isn't any like dirtier than going to two soul cycle classes a day or calorie counting, like eating a strict vegan diet, not for the environment, but for the sake of calorie suppression. What about having sex with like an endless uh, uh, carousel of strangers from Tinder and Grindr or shopping your way into like $10,000 or more of credit card debt? Again, We're all just trying to find our way home. And so for this week, I put out a casting call for current and former drug and alcohol abusers from all backgrounds to share their hows and their whys. So without further ado, this is Tales of Taboo. I began using opiates when I first arrived to America in 2009. I am originally from Ireland. 
I was 17 when I got here and drugs were readily available and offered. I was first prescribed opiates for a bladder infection that had spread to my kidneys. I attended a notoriously wealthy high school in the Seattle area, and the next thing I knew, I was doing molly and smoking heroin on someone's marble bathroom floor. I grew up with both of my parents having problems with alcohol and mental health issues. Addiction runs deeply on both my biological father's side and my mother's. This is wild because both of my parents are from opposite ends of the world. Shortly into my addiction, I got into sex work, and that world was a whole different ballgame. When I was at the worst point of my addiction, I was just doing whatever I could to pick up those 30 milligram Percocets or heroin. Life was in four-hour increments. I even was trafficked at one point and was locked in a rented apartment for sex work for days on end. But when I was high, I was euphoric and floaty. I didn't feel the pain and I didn't care about the trauma I survived. I just was. Opiates didn't want to take anything from me, they just wanted to give me happiness, or so I thought. In the beginning, only a friend knew. I lied to my foster mom, who is a real-life angel, and I had never lied to her before. Eventually, my foster brother found my back page ad and dragged me out of the apartment and gave me the cash to fly home and sort my life out. I temporarily gave up custody of my toddler to my ex's parents and went to London for 11 months to get better. I arrived at Heathrow in full withdrawals and shit myself. It was a low point. But I later returned to the U.S., regained custody and sole decision-making for my daughter. I am in my third year of college and work in the SA Crime Victims Unit here in Washington. I plan on one day applying for law school and helping women who were a part of the system, addicted to opiates, sex workers, or mothers. I absolutely believe there is a higher stigma for women. I battled my abuser in court for custody, and even that was difficult. I faced shame for leaving to London to get better for those 11 months. I faced judges, CPs, GALs, professors, police officers, family members, acquaintances, and friends. Everyone had input, and the majority was highly sexist. It was rare to find a hand to hold. However, all addiction looks the exact same no matter your sex, race, or gender. The down and outs are the down and outs. When I sat in a Motel 6 by the airport smoking heroin with my last $100, I was surrounded by people from all walks of life. But the difference is the access to treatment or help once an addict does decide to get better. There are three ways out of addiction, and that is sobriety, incarceration, or death. I have been to rehab, detox, and self-healed. I tried NA and AA also. I found for me the root of my pain was lack of love and living in scary America. You have to find the root and see a really fucking good therapist. Find a friend group that supports and uplifts your journey. I believe whatever works for a particular person is what works. Now, I vape and weightlift to cope. Addicts have a unique understanding of the dark side of humanity. It is important to cherish people who have survived and overcome such trials. I am stronger for having survived this, and I hope that more people understand that addiction is not a morality issue. It is a health crisis. So I've actually been arrested three times. The first time I was 16 and I was smoking weed in a car. At that time, I was partying a lot, drinking, and, you know, I got charged with an MIP 
and they took me to jail. But I didn't spend the night in jail. The current legal trouble that I'm in right now is I, on the day that Joe Biden became president-elect on November 6th in 2020, I drank a bottle of tequila and I was decided to drive like four blocks to my apartment and I drove straight into the back of a park truck, flipped my car, hung from a seatbelt, got arrested, handcuffed everything. They took me to the precinct, had a belligerent breakdown and tried to suck the cop's dick and... God, they sent me to a psych ward because I said I was going to kill myself. So I woke up in a psych ward. And now I just finished up uh, a year of intensive outpatient rehab. And I got my aggravated DUI dropped down to reckless driving. And now I'm on inactive probation, which just means I can't get arrested for another year. In the service industry, I'm constantly surrounded by, you know, alcoholics or drug addicts. I had been struggling with alcoholism for the past three years and I, you know, love to get blackout drunk every night or every other night. And I was driving under the influence a lot and one thing led to another and I'm upside down in my car in the middle of a road in Seattle with a group of people surrounding me screaming and <laughs> and waking up in a psych ward. My blood alcohol content was a 0.25, which is in the legal limit to drive in Washington state is a 0.08. So the lawyer said I was five times over the legal limit and I would definitely be facing jail time. And yeah, just like I had to pay $500 to my lawyer and my insurance covered my entire rehab. I luckily had car insurance. I caused $8,000 on damages to the car that I hit. My car is totaled, still can't drive to this day. They like sedated me in the hospital and I woke up with in a blue gown in a room with nothing but a mattress on the ground. It was fucking something out of a euphoria show. You know, I had to go to <laughs> uh, AAA meetings every month. I was drug tested every two weeks. I bought pee off of sober people to, you know, pass my drug test with a shampoo bottle and a thermometer and a cup of hot water. You know, I do all that. Fuck the criminal justice system. I was managed to stay sober for three months, but I relapsed and went to Vegas and blew like thousands of dollars and blacked out. But whatever, you know, it is what it is. Honestly, in my head, it really did affect me in a long haul. A year in rehab will literally straighten you the fuck up, even if I wasn't straightened up in rehab. Uh, this whole situation made me come to the conclusion that I am an alcoholic and I will forever be an alcoholic, um, and or addict and how, what I do with that information will affect my life in the most, you know, erogenous ways I can either choose to like drink keep drinking and fuck my life up more or I can sober up. Substance I struggled with the most was cocaine. It was an issue between the ages of 21 and 25 for me. I've been sober from cocaine for a couple years now and I spent like a full year, year and a half actually sober and now I drink sometimes with friends. I don't drink alone uh, ever. I was attending Harvard and also working interning in investment banking and ultimately working in investment banking. So both of those places or industries are 
things where cocaine is pretty popular. Right before my senior year when I was interning in New York City is when I first was introduced to it. And I thought it was awesome. Like I no longer felt any form of social anxiety. I wasn't hungry. And at the time I also had an eating disorder. So obviously loved that. And like, I just felt like this super, super confident version of myself where like I was free from these other things that generally like occupied a lot of my mind. And so I thought it was fucking awesome, to be honest with you. People at work did it and I would try it when they had it or do some, but I never like sought it out, I would say. It was just kind of offered to me and I wasn't spending any of my own money on it. And I was like too embarrassed to ask anyone like who their dealer was. So I just was like, this is kind of going to be the extent of this. And then I randomly got introduced to a dealer in like the winter of 2016, 2017. And that was kind of when like all bets were off after that. So I started acquiring it so that I could do it in small amounts, but pretty much like all day. I would have like a little bit of a high and I thought it was making me better at my job. Honestly, in certain ways it probably was because I was working really long hours and it helped me stay up. And like, I was like, this is great. Like, this is what I needed. Uh, I really thought it was like the solution to a lot of my problems, which it was not, but I really thought it was. And then ultimately like having one dealer stemmed into having multiple dealers. So I always had access and then I was traveling a lot for work. So I would like fly with drugs a lot, which was super dangerous, but that was just kind of like a addictive behavior, like the level of danger of your decisions just being totally off your radar. And then I started to develop like a network of dealers in the cities I had to go to for work a lot. And suddenly I just became the girl who always had a bag and I was able to do it in fairly large quantities all day, every day. And that went on for like two, three years. It went on for a while. Ultimately, like I lost a job. My behavior became super erratic. I was unable to hold down a job, so I would quit because I didn't want to get fired. My friends who didn't use thought my behavior was crazy and they were worried about me and like everyone thought I was having some sort of mental break. I got diagnosed with bipolar, which I don't actually have. So I went on some really heavy meds for that while I was still using a lot because I refused to admit I was using. It was like, the things you'll do to maintain your addiction are wild. Like anyone who's dealt with this can attest to that. And so it was just, Finally, it became too much for me. And then right before I turned 25, I just told my parents like, hey, like, I cannot think straight. I can't, I can barely see straight. I'm non-functional. I have a drug problem. Like that's why this is all happening. Like I'm not having a mental break. I have a drug problem. Or maybe I am having a mental break, but it's because I have a drug problem. And I was in treatment like two days later after that. Uh, my parents were obviously like super disappointed, but I think they were also kind of relieved to know that I was not like losing my mind and that there was a reason for all this. And I think they knew that there was something unsaid the whole time. And that was obviously what it was. So uh, I went to two different treatment centers, one in Utah, and then they had made me do a follow-up treatment center, which is just kind of part of how the rehab industry works. I'll be honest with you, I don't know if I needed to do that. I ended up spending eight months in treatment, which is a pretty long time. But you know, these are money-making industries and they will keep you there as long as they possibly can. So that's kind of what happened to me until finally I was like, I don't need to be here anymore. And I left. I had one relapse with alcohol uh, that was very short and like the mental impact it had on me was very bad and dark, but I did not go back to treatment. I just kind of snapped out of it. It was honestly a very good learning experience for me. Like I'm glad it happened. I thought I was past everything. And the important thing for anyone who's had addiction to remember is like, it's kind of always lurking. You have to be very aware of it. I do think there's definitely an added layer of shame and stigma for female addicts. Like I personally felt so much shame and still do suffer from that situation sometimes where I just am so deeply embarrassed by the way I acted. And I think what it really comes down to is that you're not yourself when you're on drugs or when you're high or when you're drunk. And to know that you are 
repeatedly presenting yourself to the world and to people whose opinions you care about in a way that is not reflective of who you actually are, like the dichotomy of that can be very painful to deal with. And so for me to come to grips with the fact that I had been this very erratic kind of insane person for like two years and to know that I was not that person, that whole relationship and that coming to terms with that was very difficult for me. And like, I'm still not totally past it. I struggled with benzos and opiates as a teenager, but I quickly got off those. Weed was my constant addiction for 14 years. I smoked pretty much daily from 15 to 29, which is when I finally decided to quit cold turkey. It took me a very long time to see my weed addiction as an actual addiction. I think a lot of that had to do with how normalized marijuana is. I was a weed advocate. It was part of my identity. I was extremely high-functioning. I've always worked, I've traveled the world, and I got my bachelor's degree, all while embracing my stoner personality. But I've struggled with panic disorder since I was 18. I got loads of therapy, but still couldn't handle it. I always said weed was my antidepressant. It was the weed keeping me calm. I'd have anxiety all day until when I got to smoke after work or right after waking up on the days that I was off. I saw it as my savior. I have a close friend who's a doctor, and I'd always confide in him about my anxiety. He told me repeatedly, I don't think you can get to the root of your anxiety while you're still smoking every day. I made excuses and continued while trying therapy and working out and meditation, everything except giving up my weed. I finally quit cold turkey after an extremely rough alcohol hangover. I used Reddit forums about cannabis withdrawal symptoms, and that made me feel less alone and realize how physically dependent I was. The first week of detox was the hardest. I had constant anxiety like a rock in my throat and chest. My pulse was high, I was sweating, I had no appetite, I couldn't sleep, and I was extremely emotional. The next month was bad too. But I was actually never tempted to smoke weed because I kept thinking how bad the withdrawal period was and I didn't want to have to experience this every time I quit. I've now been weed three for 10 months. There's not really NA or AA available where I live in Europe, but had I lived in the US, I would have gone. It would have been nice to be around other people trying to change their lives. I've had close friends celebrate my monthly successes with me, but mostly I just celebrate myself. My anxiety is manageable now, and I feel in control. I'm enjoying the little things in life and realizing what a big world there is out there when you're not in a weed haze 24-7. Quitting weed helped me also see how I was holding myself back in other departments, too. It's given me the opportunity to work on myself and heal a lot of things. I struggled with heroin, crack, cocaine, alcohol, uh, methamphetamine and probably benzo benzos uh, from time to time as well. I started using uh, opioid pills more. I remember that was the first thing I used and really um, liked when I got my wisdom teeth out Vicodin. Um, I was sent away to a therapeutic boarding school that was a pretty traumatic and abusive place. And, um, you know, I've been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress order since that event, from that event. And um, and I do think that that uh, definitely was a was a reason for the escalation of my addiction. It uh, made it easier to um, self medicate that hyper alert state, and uh, <clears throat> and also to not have nightmares. 
my addiction, like I said, was a <clears throat> was a progression. It, it, at certain times, it it was like I uh, I had it under control, and I had some pretty high functioning jobs in politics in Washington D.C., as well as uh, some some high private sector jobs and public policy jobs. Um, for my age, you know, I think that because of my addiction, I was never excelling as much as I could have, even though I was getting away with it and advancing. Looking back, I, I see it as really a waste of time because had I been sober and not spending so much time and effort on acquiring uh, and hiding doing drugs all day, I, I would have been able to do better. But I, I think from the outside perspective, I was functional. When you do hard drugs for a long time, you're really not doing them to get high anymore. You're doing them to just not feel awful dysphoria. Um, you know, and you, you still can get that euphoria sometimes, but it's a lot harder to get. And then um, I also started mixing drugs. I had been a functional opiate addict and I'd ha- kind of had that under control. Um, at least financially, I was able to pay for it and sustain my habit and not really have the typical consequences that a lot of people using that drug would have. But then, you know, I got... Um, sort of bored with the high and so I started using using crack cocaine and that really spiraled my addiction out of control. I'd been using methamphetamine on and off since I was like in high school given where I lived. I mean in my public high school it was quicker to get methamphetamine than food and so a lot of kids would do that. Um, At the end of my addiction my company failed. I had some money left over from it that I thought would last a long time um, and it didn't. Um, From there my addiction really spiraled into, you know, the very worst impoverished type of experience you're referring to. Um, I, I was homeless. I was stealing. I was pawning for drugs. I was <clears throat> in relationships with worse and worse people. I mean, very, very bad people and criminals that you would never find yourself associating with. And, you know, very recently I'd been like, close to a dream, I thought, although, you know, in my drugged out state, I was probably pretty delusional, but I thought I was pretty close to having a successful company. And then very quickly, you know, your addiction takes you to places you never thought it would, even if you've been stable in your addiction for a while. So I ran the whole gamut, was arrested many times, unfortunately, and was homeless, motel homeless, going to motels, and then, you know, even outside homeless occasionally. Uh, you know, when my car got impounded or something, um, going around in a horrible relationship and uh, hanging out in very dangerous places, um, intravenous use and uh, and and all around bad stuff that that led to me <clears throat> getting incarcerated. Um, and I've overdosed several times, but I'd say my most meaningful experience overdosing was in jail. And um, I traded all my commissary to get a needle. So I would be front of the line to get drugs in jail. Then I was very hungry because I had no food. And so I would rent my needle out, just recklessly risking my own health for food. And I, when I did get drugs, finally, I overdosed in jail. And, um, you know, I had a, a, a spiritual experience of sorts when that happened and, um, you know, saw things in perspective. I, was, I wasn't able to get sober immediately afterwards, but I would consider it a turning point in my addiction. Um, my experience has definitely made me who I was, but it was a really inordinate amount of pain and suffering that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. And um, 
would prefer to avoid in the future. And that's, that's mostly what keeps me sober is that uh, life sober is way better. My substance that I've struggled with since I was a kid has probably been alcohol. It definitely began when I was 13 with heavy alcohol drinking. I remember learning the trick of stealing the vodka and then filling it back up with water or stealing the gin and filling it back up with water. Around my late 20s, I finally made it to AA and went through the AA moments and the steps, which I fully recommend. I think that I have a problem with maintaining joy. And so I just like chase it. And then it ends in like horrible messes because I my body becomes too alive for its own good and I think it, it has to crash and burn. I don't so much struggle with it now because I've done a lot of inner healing but if I do have three drinks the fourth one usually brings me to a place that I don't really like where I just want to keep going and I'm like let's keep this going. Thank God I've always been too broke for getting addicted to any hard drugs in college. I would dig books out of the dumpster around my college and sell them for 40s. I was always kind of trying to avoid the feelings of being with myself and in my body and to acknowledge the pain. I just remember driving in the car and my mom, after picking me up after having a party at my dad's house, and my mom being like, your grandpa's an alcoholic. I don't want you to be an alcoholic. So since I was a teenager, I've had a really um, strong understanding of alcoholism. I did ruin a lot of relationships before my 30s. I got sober in my 30s. I know that I hurt my relationship with my family. I had a good relationship with my sponsor when I was doing AA, but I was going through a horrible breakup and I wanted to cope with weed and she was like I can't do that so that's how I got out of AA but um, then kind of started looking into Codependence Anonymous and CODA which are amazing programs. There's been a the whole year of me getting stoned at night and you know the feeling of stealing weed or like trying to get weed or hanging out with people to get weed that remind me of those addictive feelings where you're like at all costs and like it's fine at all costs and things getting hurt at all costs. There's a lot that I don't think we know about addiction and I think that the body does change through time, especially at different phases in your life when your body's developing or when your cells recycle. Like I think there are opportunities to, you know, close a chapter and enter a new chapter. I definitely don't crave alcohol or like want it when I'm feeling bad. I kind of either just want to like go to bed um, and I'm just really grateful that I never got into heroin or um, opioids or anything like that. After wanting to die for so long and feeling so disconnected, I feel more connected with myself than ever. And I've survived a lot of things. I do think it starts really young. I think I saw a lot of um, anger and violence when I was young and so and felt a lot of isolation. And so I think addiction... Uh, addicts are just trying to feel more connected because honestly, they're usually the most beautiful people I've ever met. I am 30 year old female. I've been sober two and a half years. Towards the end, the problem was just alcohol, but drugs have played a huge part 
in my story starting as early as high school, so about 16. I have my trauma bullet points where they're basically like my parents separated for a bit in middle school. My dad moved back home. He got in a car accident and killed someone. So in high school, he was in prison for almost a year and a half. He moved home. They got divorced. He blamed me for the divorce. I was sexually assaulted by a friend in middle school. While I've been drinking, I would say there are three times, one that I'm unsure of, but two that I would consider rape. It's obvious that I'm an addict now, but I do believe based on my familial history, it's in, it's also genetic. It would have happened eventually. I just sped up the process with how I lived. My first drink was at like 12. I was taking shots with friends. I started smoking cigarettes in middle school. I started smoking weed and using ecstasy by 16. By the time I was a senior in high school, I was using it every weekend. I went to private school and they drug tested us. And at one point I failed a drug test and we all know ecstasy is never just MDMA. So I failed for crystal meth. And of course that sent the whole school into a, a tizzy, but I was able to get away with it. And that was the thing. I was always able to get away with it because I went to a very rich private school. I lived a double life. I was with the rich kids most of the time, but I was also visiting my father in prison. And it wasn't white collar prison. It was like hardcore, talk behind the glass, can't touch. I just have always lived this double life, which didn't help the drinking. I would just drink because I felt so uncomfortable around everybody because I was trying to make light of the fact that my family life was falling apart. But I've also grown up around addicts. My dad's an addict, uncles, aunts, really like every generation in my family has at least one. But I do have sober family members, so I also knew it was possible to overcome. But my dad like enhanced it. So my mom would be like, no, you can't drink, you can't smoke. And then my dad would secretly buy me a pack of cigarettes and put a bottle of champagne in my trunk, be like, have fun with your friends. So I was always living just like a permanent double life. And it didn't help that like my long-term boyfriend turned into like the county dealer. So I also barely paid for anything. And then I thought going away to college, and this is what they call in recovery, like a geographic, I would black out like crazy, but so did everybody their freshman year. But then the second semester, I started finding the people using drugs again. I ended up graduating college early. So it's also like I never had these crazy consequences except one time I totaled my car. But even that, like, I just wasn't allowed to have my car at college anymore. Like it, not much ever happened. As an adult, once I started my career, I started at a company that we were always drinking all the time and like HR was drinking and we would black out just like at casual office parties, but I would then take it too far. I'd leave, I'd go to bars and drink by myself. I would like wake up in the hospital covered in vomit, but I'd go to work the next day. So nobody knew anything bad ever happened to me. I would say my rock bottom moment though, I was partying and meatpacking. And the next thing I know, a couple is waking me up on the sidewalk 
in Gramercy. No recollection. All of my belongings are missing. I've still never found my belongings. And it's been two and a half years. I told my friends, like, you know, I think I need to, I need help. I need to stop drinking. And they're like, no, this is normal. And I'm like, no, it's like, this isn't normal because you guys don't know what I'm actually doing when I tell you I'm going home. I was always the one that would be like, okay, bye. And then I'd go and like drink by myself at a bar. I believe in AA for getting sober. I personally don't go anymore. I've also been in therapy for 20 years. So that kind of helped make my decision to stop going to AA. I liked the sense of community of sober people, but I just couldn't always focus on the past. And I also couldn't function with the thought process that everything I do is because I'm an alcoholic. Like, If I argued with my brother, that's not because I'm an alcoholic. We're just having an argument and we'll work through it. The last time I considered relapsing was I was assaulted on the subway when we started returning to work from COVID when the subways were empty, but I didn't and I'm proud of myself for that. I think we can get better. I don't think you have to live in this addictive past, but I think you need to acknowledge that it was there to keep you sober. I got sober when I was 21 after addiction to multiple substances, mainly being benzos, cocaine, and alcohol. I stayed fully sober for a little over a year and a half, and while living in California, I started smoking weed. The only substances I allow myself to use now are weed and occasionally psychedelics. Unfortunately, one night I was drugged and raped, and this is when I really started to have addiction issues starting kind of a self-medication, just kind of numbing myself, getting out of my head with alcohol and benzos. I'd take a lot of Xanax, I'd buy. That's how it began. So I was adopted, and that's a really common, I guess, context for people in addiction. It kind of really gives you that feeling of being an outcast in such a deep way. And um, I guess that it really helps predispose a lot of people to being susceptible to addiction. I also grew up with heavy drinkers as with my adoptive parents. They were very, very social party people and um, they drink pretty much daily when I was growing up. It's a lot less now, especially after I've gotten sober. But um, my mom takes a lot of pills for anxiety and sleep and drinks on them and then I also would find a lot of cocaine in my house which was I believe my dad's having untreated PTSD plus abusing a lot of drugs and um I also had insomnia so it ended up looking like mental illness and I was put on medication and diagnosed with bipolar one disorder and the way I felt when I was drunk or high I think I just was so anxious and traumatized and just I could not stand to be in my own head and um that substances gave me what I wanted it just took me out of what I was with and it helped me be social anyone that was my friend that knew about my drug use and what was going on with me it was mostly just a topic of gossip where I'm from like nobody really offered any support or expressed much concern one thing that I think is really common too with females is that the more you use, the more shady situations you get yourself in, the more susceptible you are to sexual and otherwise assault and trauma. So my rock bottom 
was when I was living in California in treatment. I had just moved out of sober living and I ended up overdosing on fentanyl. I was insanely enough doing it on purpose with this boy that I met in treatment and he got me hooked on it. And within a week I had to resuscitate a friend with CPR because the Narcan we had didn't work. And the next day um, I overdosed myself. I was smoking fentanyl powder from some glass contraption the drug dealer brought over. And the next thing I knew I was on the floor, they had poured a bunch of water on me. And um, the guy said that I didn't need to go to the hospital and just gave me cereal and put on TV. A couple days later, thankfully, I was in outpatient, which I was still going to really high every day. And I told them what had happened. And I told someone and they told the staff. And I got sent to detox for 10 days and then another sober living. When I got sober that time, I really saw it as a miracle that I'm alive because of that overdose. Because nobody gave me CPR, nobody narcaned me, I didn't go to the hospital. My first rehab was a very, very nice rehab in the Northeast and I didn't spend much time there. I left and I went to a psych ward in New York and that was very intense, like no strings in my sweatpants, checks when I was in the shower, I had to get out of the shower to show them I was not harming myself. And then from there, I went to a 30-day treatment center in Arizona that I really had a great experience at. I now credit my sobriety to yoga and spirituality and wellness. I really had to get immersed in kind of giving myself a new personality in order to get out of my mindset that was obsessed with drugs. And I really was thought drugs were cool. I struggled mainly with alcohol abuse and on and off usage of drugs like ecstasy, Adderall, or cocaine. Really, whatever was the easiest and cheapest to get. I struggled with suicidal depression at a very young age, and around 12 was the beginning of a lifelong battle of dermatillomania, which is chronic skin picking. That in itself feels like an addiction, but maybe that's a category for another episode. I learned when I was younger that dermatillomania was an offset of OCD, which is an offset of anxiety disorders. My parents put me in psychotherapy when they saw me cutting myself around 13, but otherwise they were completely absent and my therapist was a dunce, so it was not beneficial at all. I slid right into drug and alcohol abuse because it was accessible and the only thing that made me feel okay. Eventually, sex became that for me too. I lost my virginity at 14 and became a very sexually active and promiscuous kid. I actually became aware of what felt like a sex addiction sooner than my alcohol addiction because it started to socially ruin my life and I continued to wear that badge of shame way into my early 20s. I was always broke so my drug access was entirely dependent on who I was hanging out with or hooking up with. Almost every time I went through bouts of drug use it was because of the man or woman I was sleeping with. I usually met these people in seedy places because of my rampant drinking. When I was drunk or high, it felt like heaven. I'd feel so happy. So, so extremely happy. I've had limited sober experiences that come close to how good I felt in those moments, but I think that's normal. Every friendship and romantic relationship and any relationship I had with any authority figures absolutely imploded because I was so unreliable and very careless with people's feelings. I did not hold myself accountable or reciprocate in any of my relationships. 
It really helped me keep myself alone in my bubble of selfish misery. In my personal experience, being a woman, I felt that the ability to admit that I was struggling with these issues was very limited. First off, I felt that my issues sexualized me. I mean, I was literally dealing with issues of hypersexuality, but I truly felt that my wild side was seen as appealing and took away the ability for me to be taken seriously, especially since I wasn't a mess on the outside. Second, I saw firsthand how the local colleges targeted their addiction programs specifically towards men. I have been to a handful of AA meetings in the uptown area of New Orleans, and back then it was only men. Very rare that I saw a woman in one of those meetings. It was as if the addiction services offered at the colleges were literally only there for men in fraternities. I do not believe young women are given the liberty to expose their weakness in the way that men are, especially in academic institutions. Now, being a white woman, I felt serious guilt for a while that my redemption in the eyes of the law, graduate programs, etc. was seen as a virtuous experience and not one that made me less than. I have had the privilege of being seen as more than this experience and not have this tied to my identity. I absolutely feel that whiteness and addiction is painted with fortitude and forgiveness and for any person who is non-white, you are not extended this grace. I feel this could be said for all things, especially in America, but the addiction community is not an outlier in systemic race issues we have in this country. From your neighbors to the federal government, I believe our entire country lets down addicts and that letdown is correlated with our complete lack of willingness and understanding on how to deal with mental health issues. I do not see a world in my lifetime where this could be fixed. We truly dehumanize people who struggle with addiction. I rarely share this story with people because I know how I will be perceived. I'm in a professional setting now where I felt if this was known about me, it would severely limit my opportunities, which is the reason why I did not share this as an audio clip. I struggle with paranoia about letting this side of my life be known, even though it is so integral to who I am. I am a more compassionate and understanding person because of that experience. I have been unchained from demons I felt I would never be able to shake. As for advice with anyone struggling with addiction, I do feel that a loss of hope will kill you, but I'm not sure there's any appropriate one advice fits all here. Your higher power will lead you to where you are supposed to be. To start off, I'm from New York, now living in Florida, and I struggle with a drug called opioids. Whether it be heroin or fentanyl, at this point, I'm not really sure what I'm getting because it's from the streets. I've been in active addiction now for about two years, but started off with Percocets before moving to Florida and then progressively got worse when I moved down here. The move was unrelated because still to this day, my entire family is unaware that I am indeed an addict. I guess my true, true beginning started with weed, but I don't consider that a gateway drug, nor do I believe it's a drug at all. It's medicine without sounding like an addict. Addiction runs in my family. My uncle was a coke addict in his younger years, and my mother is a functioning alcoholic, and a mean one at that. But anyway, I grew up on Long Island, surrounded by Long Island mommy drugs like Valium, Xanax, Ambien. Whatever I needed or wanted was in the medicine cabinet, not far out of reach. These things were normalized, and every mom in town had them. However, the word addiction was not spoken openly about. It's very hush-hush. If a kid in town had a problem, mommy and daddy would magically make the problem go away. 
However, I have and probably always will be a heavy weed smoker, but the Percocet and opioid use didn't start until I met my boyfriend. We've been together five years, but I still don't blame him for my problem. Like I said, I've been around using other things before I even met him. I would get barred out in college a lot and experiment heavily with psychedelics, being that I went to school in Boulder, Colorado, and everyone and everything was a free spirit and about finding yourself spiritually and openly. Psychedelics were my favorite, though, especially acid. Nonetheless, I truly believe that if it wasn't for the pandemic, I wouldn't have had spiraled into such harsh and addictive drugs because I was in school and had a job at the time and just wouldn't have had the time to be nodding out. I tried a semester of active addiction and going to school and I would literally nod out at the desk or just not show up at all. I lost my job because of the pandemic and also put school on hold because I couldn't handle online classes. So I had no money and continued into my downward spiral. It came to points where I had to sell my laptop, luxury handbags and shoes and family jewelry that was and still so special to me. My father's gold ring, which is the only thing I have from him. A Cartier watch, a Cartier ring, David Yerman rings and bracelets and other things. I know these are just stuff, but the family jewelry still obsessed me to this day and will probably continue to make me feel guilty the rest of my life. We've been evicted from an apartment and couldn't afford to move, have had our car repoed, and once my boyfriend, whose main skill is electrical, ended up in jail for the night because we decided to steal wire from Home Depot and strip the wire to scrap the copper for money. They wanted to cuff me as well, but he took the blame off me and claimed it was all his idea so I wouldn't have anything on my record. Before the car was repoed, my boyfriend got too high, passed out at the wheel, and got into a car accident. Luckily, I wasn't in the car, and luckily, he and the car were both okay. But I've also overdosed, and my boyfriend took videos of me to basically try and show me how scary it really is. But even still, nothing stopped us from using. Nonetheless, all of that wouldn't have happened had we not been addicts. We are slowly opening our own business. We do design and construction renovations for apartments and have a partner to flip them. But to be honest, we make nearly no profits, even on huge price tag jobs, because our money goes to our habit. We don't make enough to support our habit and actually live and eat. If it wasn't for our addiction, we would live comfortably and not have to worry about money even at all. But it's been so long in this hole that tolerance gets higher and you have no choice but to spend more in order to feel okay. Not even high, just okay, just coasting. To be honest, at first in the beginning, it was fun and it was freeing and it felt good to be high, to forget our problems. And it was fun because I didn't rely on it. We didn't have to. The second the line crosses to relying on it or else I'll go into withdrawal, it's no longer fun and it's just stressful. Wondering, am I going to be able to find some tonight so I can at least sleep? It's not fun stealing from family or lying to family, nor is it fun to live at the pawn shop. It's not fun to be in a situation where your drug dealer says he'll give you a deal in exchange for sexual favors and being so desperate that you actually think about doing it or even not thinking at all and just doing it so you can get your stuff and go. And it's definitely not fun to lose everything you own. We recently had our storage unit sold to auction and lost everything we had in there, which was basically everything we owned besides two suitcases of clothes and shoes. We have tried to get sober many times, but the withdrawals are so painful, it just makes you want to use. 
And at this point, I still don't know if I'm ready to be truthful to my parents or anyone for that matter and ask for help. It's the relationships I've completely lost. Some of my best friends because I was too ashamed to say I'm in a dark place or to say anything at all. It's the relationships with your family and even my own relationship with my boyfriend. I know things would be different if we weren't addicts. I want things to change. I know they will. I just know it's going to be a long and hard path to get there. I don't think addicts ever really get better. I think it's a lifelong struggle that we'll probably both have to deal with for the rest of our lives. But I know once we get through the withdrawals and on to the other side of recovery, things will get better. Nothing could get much worse than living in active addiction. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, and those of you who identify as neither, my name is Allie Weiss, and this has been Tales of Taboo. If you yourself have an anonymous confession that you feel compelled to share with me, it does not have to be about addiction. It can be about anything. Please let me know. My email is Allie at AllieWeissWorld.com. You can also DM me on Instagram at AllieWeissWorld. However, those DMs get clogged up real fast with castings and also with really scary love and hate mail. If you love this show, if it resonates with you, please take literally five seconds, like actually five seconds, and leave me a rating and review on any platform you're listening from, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You have the ability to do it on both platforms, and it is the only way that you can be guaranteed good karma for the next 50 years. I am really looking forward to seeing and hearing from you guys next week. As always, your time and attention and care and willingness to be open with me is the only reason that I get out of bed in the morning, not to put too much pressure on you, but it is true. So until we meet again, be good.